0: Good morning. So it is an honor to be here. I'm happy to be here. Uh, I'm also somewhat intimidated to be here. Uh, that is because of your pastor and his brother. Uh, when I am around the DePrima brothers, I feel like I always need to have a pen and paper to write down what they say because they are so excessively well-informed and brilliant. And so I am envious of you and the uh, the way that you are taught and the uh, the quality of the doctrine and the preaching and the teaching that you receive here uh, brother from all observations you are doing a, a a tremendous job and um what a delight it has been for me just a little bit to get to know your elders um, um it was a, a great thrill to be with them On Friday night Uh, just a word about you Ben Uh, I discovered that Ben's father was a pastor and that his sermons are still available on Sermon Audio in fact there are over 300 of them Um, my friend you come from evangelical royalty and I would I would encourage you to go to Sermon Audio and to look up Dean Allen and to listen to uh, some of his uh, sermons. I think that that would be a great delight to you. Uh, so it has been uh, a great joy to be with you uh, um, this weekend so far, and my wife had such a wonderful time teaching the ladies this morning, and now today we're going to be looking at Jesus Christ, our high priest, from Hebrews chapter 4. And so I would ask, please, that you would take your copy of the scriptures, turn to Hebrews chapter 4 the point of the bible is jesus the point of the book of hebrews is that jesus is better than anything in judaism and the point of hebrews chapter 4 is that jesus gives us rest now i don't believe that the verses that we are about to read this morning actually belong in hebrews chapter 4. thematically They fit in much better with the next chapter, and that is the discussion concerning Jesus Christ as our high priest. Nevertheless, let me read these verses, and then what I will do is I will do the very best that I can today to explain what these verses mean and then hopefully make some application in your life. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Father in heaven, uh, this is a time of need for us. Uh, We need you. We need your spirit to be our teacher. Lord, I need your spirit to fill me and empower me to deliver the word today with clarity, with accuracy. I pray, dear Lord, that as I preach today, Lord, that you would give me joy in Jesus Christ as I talk about our great high priest. And Lord, I pray that you would give me compassion For the people to whom i am speaking lord so that lord i can communicate your love to them and so lord we want to learn about jesus christ our great high priest and lord would you through your spirit please be our teacher we ask it in jesus name amen so jesus christ as our great high priest Uh, this book was written to jewish people who probably were living in rome in or around the year A.D. 66 or 67. Uh, They have become Christians, uh, but they are Jewish, and they are tempted to go back into Judaism. And so he brings up the subject of the priesthood. Now, what is a priest? Well, a priest is one who goes to God on behalf of the people. We cannot connect with God because we are sinful and because he is holy. And so we need someone to bridge the gap. And that's what a priest does. A a priest stands in the middle and a priest touches both parties. It brings them together. Well, As I said, this letter is written to Jews. They know what a priest is. They understand their need for a priest. And in their former religion, in Judaism... Uh, There was provision for this in that there were many priests, and each of those priests had to come from the tribe of Levi. But there was one priest who served in the chief or the top spot, and he was known as the high priest. Now, this high priest not only had to be from the tribe of Levi, but he had to be a descendant of Abraham. And his most significant act of intercession or bringing God and the people together was his one time per year walk into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement and to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. Uh, He did this in order to atone for the sins of the people. We read about this in Leviticus 16 and in Leviticus chapter 23. So what was the mercy seat? Well, when you consider... The shrine of worship for the Jews, either the tabernacle or the temple, uh, you had a holy place, and then behind the holy place, or in the holy of holies, behind the veil, that you had a mercy seat, which was a lid uh, which covered a chest, and the chest was known as the Ark of the Covenant. And the act of sprinkling blood on the mercy seat was a symbolic gesture which signified that there had been a death, a sacrificial death for the people, uh, that an animal had died and shed its blood. And it was a picture of the foundational gospel truth, namely that the wages of sin is death. And, And so what the high priest would do, the high priest every year would walk into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat one day a year But you need to understand, and this is really important for our discussion today, that in doing this, never once was one single sin ever removed or forgiven as a result of this act. It was 100% symbolic. So if it was purely symbolic, then why go through with it? Well, because it gave Israel... A visual illustration or a symbol of the coming one who would shed his blood on Mount Calvary and actually atone for the sins of the people once and for all never to be repeated Christ died for our sins or the gospel is of first importance now what I need you to do this morning is to put yourself in their sandals you are a Jew your jewishness is your entire life it is your identity it's your family it's your religion it is your social life there is no such thing as being marginally jewish you are all in and all of a sudden someone comes to you and explains to you that jesus is the messiah and that jesus is our great high priest and that he offered himself and his blood On the cross in order to save you and that he rose again and that he is alive today and that he lives to be your Savior and you come to understand that all of the rituals in Judaism including the Day of Atonement are no longer necessary they were just symbols or figures or shadows or types but that the substance is in Christ and you you see it you are regenerated by the Holy Spirit and you say amen hallelujah what a Savior Jesus is my Lord Jesus is my high priest. But this is important. In saying yes to Jesus, you are saying no or goodbye to Judaism and the Aaronic priesthood. And as a result of that, you are immediately disowned by your family and your friends. And you are in a position now to be persecuted by the Roman government. And your faith starts to weaken And you begin to debate in your mind, is it really worth it to stick with Christianity? I mean, wouldn't it be easier? Wouldn't it be better if I just went back to Judaism? And the answer that the author of the book of Hebrews gives is no. It it wouldn't be better. In fact, it would be far worse. Why? Because when you forfeit Jesus, you discard the only priest or the only mediator who can connect you to God. And therefore, the author uses a lot of ink in this book in order to demonstrate that Jesus is our great high priest. In fact, the discussion, which begins at the end of chapter 4, runs all the way through chapter 10. And so what we have is Jesus, our great high priest. Well, we have one who intercedes for us. And so what I'm going to do today in verses 14 through 16, I'm going to give you a very simple outline. I'm going to take it one verse at a time. Uh, Point number one from verse 14 is his position. That is, he is our great high priest. And then point number two is going to come from verse 15, and that is his passion. And what is his passion? Well, his passion is that he sympathizes with us. And then point number three is going to come from verse 16, and that is his power. And his power is that he can help us. Point number one, his position, our great high priest. Verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Perhaps some of their Jewish friends may have questioned their switch to Christianity from Judaism by saying, how in the world do you expect to have your sins forgiven if you don't have a priest to connect you to God? And this author says, we do have a priest, but he's not just any priest. In fact, he's not just any high priest. He is the great high priest, superior to all other priests in Judaism. And his superiority, according to this verse, is demonstrated by the fact that he has passed through the heavens. You see, the imagery here is that of the Jewish high priest who would pass from the outer court into the, holy of, into the holy place and then from the holy place through the veil into the holy of holies. But it was all symbolic. Our great high priest has actually passed into the heavens. That, he, that is, he has ascended to the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. What was happening here with these people is that they did not understand that the work of the Jewish high priest was just symbolic. In the year 2000, I took my family on vacation from our home in New York City over to the small town where I was raised in western Pennsylvania. And it happened to be during the first week of August while the Clearfield County Fair was going on. And it is a wonderful fair. I mean, it is a fair with tractor pulls and with cows and with hogs and with candied apples and with rides and with games. It's just your typical county fair. It is middle America brilliance in all its greatness. And there happened to be at this particular county fair way back off in the corner of the fairgrounds, a little stage. And this year, uh, 2000, there happened to be A musical group that was performing and it was a group that was imitating the Backstreet Boys now uh, I wouldn't call them a band because they were not playing any instruments in fact I think they might have even been lip-syncing or maybe they were just singing along with tracks and they kind of looked like the Backstreet Boys well my two daughters Savannah and Madison were too young to know who the Backstreet Boys were and my oldest son Parker well he knew that it was uh, just an imitation, but my son Charlie, who's sitting right over here, was seven years old at the time, and he actually thought that they were the Backstreet Boys. And so you have six or seven teenage girls who are standing up at the stage yelling at these young men who kind of look like the Backstreet Boys, and you have Charlie, seven years old, saying, hey, Nick, hey, Howie, hey, AJ, like they thought that it was real. Well, the Jewish people who, through the high priest, thought that that was actually real. They thought that that was actually making atonement for sin. But but it wasn't. It wasn't the real thing. It was an imitation. The real priestly work is done by Christ himself in heaven, where our sins are actually forgiven. That is where the real high priest gives genuine mediatorial work before God. You see, our great high priest has ascended to the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high, and that is where he reigns, and in his position as mediator or go-between, he, through virtue of his own blood or death, intercedes for us. And in light of this, the author says, here's something that you need to do, verse 14, and that is that we need to hold fast our confession. But notice before we get to that, the titles that the author uses in order to depict both the humanity and the divinity of our Lord. He refers to him as Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus is his human name. It speaks to his humanity, that he is fully man. And then Son of God refers to his divinity. And is that not what a priest does? He can touch both God and man. So we have a high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. Our great high priest brings sinful man into the presence of holy God. And no one else could carry this title of great high priest and now in his position as great high priest we then considering that position need to do something and what is that let us hold fast our confession you know if you know anything about the book of hebrews uh, several times up to this point in the book there has been a constant warning or reminder that they are not to turn back but that they are continue they need to press on Uh, For example, back in chapter 3, verse 6, we are told that we are his house if, I, F, if, conditional phrase, if we continue. And it has been mentioned several times so far in the book of Hebrews, the admonition to press on. But previously, all of the admonitions to press on have been negative, so to speak, in that they have been a warning that if you do not press on, then you are not to consider yourself as part of the family of God. But here... The motivation changes. Here, it is positive. It's not a warning, but it is a mention of the fact that there is a great benefit to pressing on. And what is that? We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. So, what is his position? He is our great high priest. Uh, Point number two comes from verse 15, and that is his passion, and that is his sympathy. This verse is a little bit more complicated, so pay close attention. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, notice the use of the double negative, uh, which results in a positive. It does not say we have a high priest who can sympathize, although we do have a high priest who can sympathize. Rather, it says we do not have one who cannot sympathize. Well, what is the difference? I think, and a lot of commentators have have said this, that what the author is doing is that the author is anticipating an objection on the part of the reader which would go something like this. You just told me that he's gone. Uh, You have just told me that he has moved forward. Through the heavens that, that, that he's not in a different city he's not even in a different continent he has left the planet earth that he has passed through the heavens that he has ascended how can he relate uh, wouldn't it be better if we had a high priest who was with us here and now to which the author says if that is the way that you're seeing it you're getting it all wrong because we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses On the contrary, he can relate to your grief in that he can sympathize with your weaknesses. Now, let's be careful how far we take this. Does this mean that Jesus had to become a man in order to understand what man goes through? I will say that the answer is no. Uh, There is a sense in which Jesus understands everything that we go through simply by virtue of the fact that he is omniscient God. He didn't have to come from heaven to earth in order to love us. Uh, He loves us even before coming to earth. Even without becoming a man, Jesus gets it by virtue of the fact that he is all-knowing. It says in the Old Testament that he knows our thoughts afar off. A thousand years before Jesus was born David writes in Psalm 103 verse 14 for he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust he didn't have to become a man in order to know our frame and to know that we are dust in other words he is fully aware of our limitations before he ever comes to earth however the fact that he condescends and takes upon human flesh becomes a man is born of a woman born under the law and experiences the full range of of human sorrow intensifies his sympathy for us. It it doesn't make him wiser. It doesn't make him smarter. It doesn't make him more well-informed. But it does express or demonstrate his love for us and his identification with us. But please be careful that you don't take this too far. And here's what I mean by that. If you read this and you say, That because of his humanity we can now conclude that he can look us in the eye and say I know exactly what you are going through because I have gone through it myself you are taking it further than the text itself intends if we go in that direction we are going to paint ourselves in a corner and the illustration is going to break down badly for example I am a pastor and as a result I deal with sickness and death all the time I have never lost a spouse, and I hope that I never do lose a spouse. I hope that my wife loses a spouse, uh, because I would rather die than to put her in the ground. But as a pastor, I have to deal with people who are widows all the time. Now, please understand, I love these people. Uh, I care about them. I will go to their home. I will go to the hospital. I will go to the funeral home. I will pray with them, I will pray for them, I will talk to them. But I cannot look them in the eye and say, I know how you feel. Because I can't. I've never lost a spouse. Now there are some who will take this passage about Jesus sympathizing with our weaknesses and say, but even though you as a pastor cannot sympathize with their weaknesses, you need to know that Jesus, our great high priest, can look these people in the eye and say, I sympathize with your weakness. I know exactly what you're going through. To which some people might say, oh, amen, isn't that wonderful? And other thinking people will say, hey, wait a minute, when did Jesus ever lose a spouse? He didn't, he was never married. And that's where the illustration breaks down. When it says that he can sympathize with our weaknesses, it doesn't mean that he himself in his humanity over his 33 years on earth went through every single hardship imaginable that we potentially could encounter. What the author is saying here is that, generally speaking, Jesus went through the full range of human limitations. He experienced these things, and he knows what his people are going through in their weaknesses, their frailties, and their sorrows, and their disappointments. Why? Why? Because he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and he was poor, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And because he wept, and because he got tired, and then when he got tired, he slept, and he thirsted, and he was hungry, and when he was hungry, he ate, and he was despised and rejected by men, and he bled and he died. And so, experientially, he can sympathize with our weaknesses, he can empathize with our weaknesses. But let's remember, not only can he do that because he came to earth and became a man, but brothers and sisters, I want to tell you today that he maintains his humanity. Uh, When we speak of Christ in his mediatorial role, what do we hear? We hear that there is one God and that there is one mediator between God and man, and Paul says it is who? It is the man, Christ Jesus. So he can sympathize with our weaknesses. But now look at the second half of the verse. And once again, I think that there is a tendency to take this too far. That we need to be very careful with this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Be careful that you do not take this too far. This does not suggest that Jesus within his heart had some sort of an inner bias or a gravitational pull towards sin because he did not all of the temptations of Jesus were 100% external they came from the devil they came from other men they came from circumstances we too likewise have been tempted by The devil and other men and circumstances, but we have something else going on in our heart that Jesus cannot relate to, and that is that we are tempted from within. We have an inner voice which comes to us and tells us to sin. Now, sometimes this voice is louder than others, but the truth of the matter is, you always are telling yourself to sin and you always will and you'll be able to stop that conversation when you flatline and not until so please get used to you you live with you and you will always be telling you to sin but jesus had a pure and a holy heart and he had no inner allurement to break god's law his temptations were 100 external which leads me to take this verse in perhaps a slightly different direction than you may have heard it previously proclaimed. And that is, I will take the word tempted, and I will tell you that it also can be translated as tested. The testing of Jesus included, yes, his temptations to sin by the devil in the wilderness, but there was something more to the testing of Jesus And that is repeatedly, he was tested to turn back and to forego the suffering of the cross. I think this is the direction that the author wants us to go. For example, turn back to Matthew chapter 16. Here we have an example of Jesus being tested to forego the cross. The setting is Caesarea Philippi. Peter has just made this wonderful proclamation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we start to read in verse 21 that from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Previously Christ has been speaking in veiled language. Now it's right in your face. I'm going to Jerusalem and they're going to kill me. What is the response of Peter? Here's where the testing comes in. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying far be it from you lord this shall never happen to you but he turned to peter and said get behind me satan for you are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of god but on the things of man you see that which aligned peter with satan is that both of them were trying to get jesus to forego the cross that i think is the testing that is referred to here I have another reason why I think that, and that is because in hermeneutics or the interpretation of Scripture, context is king. And as we move from chapter 4 of Hebrews into chapter 5, the testing of Christ is mentioned in verses 7 through 9 of chapter 5. Uh, look at the testing that he goes through there, it is identical to the testing that we saw. Coming from Simon Peter. And that is that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. This is referring to the Garden of Gethsemane. Loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. What was the test or the trial that Jesus went through during his loud cries in the Garden of Gethsemane? Well, Matthew tells us exactly what that test was, and that is that Jesus prayed in Matthew 26, 39, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will, or thy will be done. You see, I don't think that Hebrews 4.15 is referring to Jesus having some sort of a struggle as to whether or not to steal money uh, from the purse like Judas did. I, I don't think that Hebrews 4.15 is talking about Jesus being tempted to commit adultery. I, I don't think that Hebrews 4.15 is talking about Jesus being tempted to gossip about Bartholomew. I think in the context here, the temptation and the testing referred to was his ability to press ahead and not turn back. And I think that the victory of Jesus Christ manifested itself through his restraint not to call 12 legions of angels to help him, but for he himself to go to the cross. And I think his victory was seen in his compliance to allow the crown of thorns to be ground into his skull and to not fight back, and to use the muscles in his hand to be mocked and to actually reach out and hold the reed, the mock scepter, uh, That. I believe, is his victory. And I believe that his victory is seen in his passivity to submit his hands and his feet to be nailed to the cross. And I believe that his victory was seen in his unwavering determination to stay on that cross and to allow his Father to kill him for our sins. You see, if you read the book of Hebrews in context, the people to whom this book was written were sort of in a gethsemane type situation in that they were on the fence that it was decision time they were being tempted to turn back and the writer says you need to hold on you need to persevere you might suffer In fact, you might even be killed. You might be martyred because of your association with Jesus. And I'm not making any promises to you. I'm not sure what cruel and creative ways Nero will find in order to humiliate you and torture you. But you need to press on. And all the while know that as you are in the tough spot that you are in, you have a sympathetic high priest who knows exactly what you are going through because he himself was repeatedly tested and tried and tempted to forego the cross. And some people will look at this and say, well, he is God and the intensity of his testing is nothing like what we have to go through. The intensity of his testing is far worse than anything that we would have to go through. For one thing, Because we give in to our temptations, we have no idea the extent of temptation which leads to victory. And when we give in, whenever you quit, the pressure is off. But Jesus never quit. He never gave up, so the pressure was never off. But the main reason why the intensity of his testing was far worse than anything that we would ever go through is because he fully knows God the Father. The reason that you sin is that you do not know God the Father. If you knew what He was like, if I really knew Him and what He was like, I would never dare to sin. Uh, We know about the wrath of God. We read about the wrath of God. The Holy Spirit has revealed in part to us the wrath of God, but in reality, we don't know Him, but Jesus from the very beginning, knows God the Father and He knows what is waiting for Him when He gets on that cross and our sins are put upon Him and then Holy God unleashes His wrath upon the Son. That's where the temptation comes in. Did He turn back? No, He didn't turn back. And so you, my friend, as you are thinking about leaving Christianity, please know, That there's somebody who understands what you're going through. We have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Now again, I I do believe that Jesus never stole anything. I don't think he wanted to. I I, I do believe that he never committed adultery. I don't think he wanted to. I, I do believe that Jesus never gossiped about Bartholomew. I believe that he never did. I do believe in the sinlessness of Christ. I believe that my salvation is contingent upon the sinlessness of Christ, because his record becomes our record, and if he sins, he's not a suitable sacrifice for us. If he sins... His record, if it becomes ours, it damns us. I understand this. I believe in the impeccability of Christ. Not only that he did not sin, but I believe that as God, he could not sin. I am not saying that Jesus sinned. I'm not speaking about that at all. I believe that he did not sin. I just think that in the context, the primary message of the sympathy of Christ, which he exercises as our great high priest, is that he knows what it is like to suffer for righteousness sake and not turn back. I think that that's what it means in the context. However, even still, please don't hear me saying that I am denying that Jesus is sympathetic to our daily hurts and weaknesses and temptations and non-life-threatening trials. In other words, I think that the text means that he cares about you denying the faith and rejecting Christianity, but let me be clear, I also think that Jesus cares about your ingrown toenail. I think that the text means that he cares about your ability to withstand persecution, but let me be clear, I also believe that he cares about your depression or maybe your thoughts of suicide or your sadness. I believe that in the context, what it's saying is that he cares about your willingness to suffer and be mocked in school or at work for the sake of his name, but I believe that he also cares about your addiction to pornography or your addiction to alcohol. I believe that he cares about every aspect of your life. I'm not denying the overarching love and sympathy of Jesus, our great high priest. I'm simply saying that I think in this context the author is probably primarily speaking about suffering and persecution. But regardless, even if I am wrong, can we not agree together that Jesus cares and that Jesus is without sin? So, point number one, his position, he is our great high priest. Point number two, his sympathy his passion, and now point number three from verse 16, and that is his power, his power. Hebrews 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know those people, and you know the people I'm talking about. They are very sensitive when they know that you are hurting, uh, they will shed a tear. Uh, they will lose sleep for you. Uh, they will always come alongside you and they will say something. They will write you a note or, or send you a text. These are sympathetic people who are aware of the hurting of other people and they will acknowledge that and they will identify with you. You, you know those people, right? I thank God for these people. But ultimately, at the end of the day, quite often, these sympathetic people really can't do anything to help you. They can't help you. It's like, if you ever been broken down by the side of the road, and you have a flat tire or something, and a car pulls up beside you, and they roll down the window, and they say, oh, man, tough break. And then they drive on. Well, be warm, be filled. That didn't help you. Jesus is not just one who Cares about how you feel, but this verse says that we can find grace to help in time of need. And please understand that the language or the motif of these verses all deals with the high priest in the temple in Jerusalem. And so, just like we have the high priest who has passed through the veil into the Holy of Holies, we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens into the presence of God. Even so, This verse, verse 16, talks about us coming to the throne of grace. Do you know that until quite recently, I thought that the throne of grace referred to a royal throne where a king or a queen would sit. After studying it recently, I no longer believe that. Now, let me just be clear. I do believe that Jesus sits on a royal throne. But I believe that the throne of grace in this context is referring to the mercy seat which is the lid on the ark of the covenant where the blood was sprinkled the throne of grace is the mercy seat why do i believe that well uh, number one and primarily because of the context of the high priest motif but also because in isaiah chapter 37 verse 16 it says o lord of hosts god of israel enthroned above the cherubim. Where were the cherubim? The cherubim were the images uh, above the Ark of the Covenant where the Shekinah glory of God would be in the middle of them, but they were above the mercy seat. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. So the throne of God is... Above the mercy seat. And please understand that the throne of grace is a throne of grace. It's not a throne of works. And and of course, the mercy seat is just another way of saying the Lord Himself. Just like when you speak about the crown, I think that there is a television program about Queen Elizabeth, it's called The Crown. Uh, I've been told that it's a pretty good show and that I should watch it. I haven't gotten around to doing that yet, but I heard it's a pretty good show. But everybody understands when you say the crown, you are not talking about the actual headdress which rests on the head of Elizabeth, but it is referring to the queen herself. Likewise, when you speak about the throne of grace or the mercy seat, it's just figurative language for Jesus himself as our great high priest. In other words, the throne of grace is referring to his sacrifice and his intercession and his work as our mediator, his finished work for mankind, his enthronement at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high, his acceptability before God. And so the tabernacle or the temple was the place where heaven and earth would meet. And the central feature of that religious shrine was the mercy seat in the Upon the Ark of the Covenant. And that which symbolically made the people acceptable in God's holy presence was the evidence of death. And what was the evidence of death? It was blood. Exodus chapter 12, verse 13 When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Later in the book of Hebrews, we will read that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And now when we get into the New Covenant, it is not the blood of bulls and goats, but it is the blood of Jesus Christ. It is the death of Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1.7. In Him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of trespasses. Or or 1 John 1.7, the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So on the cross, Jesus, our great high priest, sprinkled His own blood on the mercy seat and became a propitiation or an atoning sacrifice or an appeasement of the wrath of God for us, such that holy wrath has now been satisfied. And what ended up happening is that the veil of the temple was rent in twain or torn in two from top to bottom, and now because our great high priest has sprinkled his own blood on the mercy seat or the throne of grace, we now with confidence can draw nigh and get help not one time a year symbolically someone else for us but in reality 24 hours a day with no limitations we can come into the presence of God to get help and we can come how with a disposition of confidence let us then with confidence draw near Please understand two things. First of all, confidence is not self confidence. We do not walk into the presence of God based upon our own merits. You know what this is like. You have a good week. And I don't know for you what constitutes a good week. You perhaps behaved yourself on the internet. You, you were kind to your neighbor. You didn't yell at your wife. You were benevolent with your money. You read your Bible every day. To the best of your ability, you were basically good. And you say to yourself, now, I cannot wait to get into the presence of God because of the way that I have behaved this week It's going to be an easy entrance for me. If you are going to the presence of God based upon your performance, you are not going to go in. You must go in through the blood of another. You must go in with confidence in the work of Christ. And also, confidence is not cockiness. I I cringe when I hear people pray and they say with cockiness, Yo, Jesus, what's up? Or they refer to the man upstairs or, hey God, it's me, how you been? Or they wear t-shirts that say, Jesus is my homeboy. Such irreverence is highly offensive. To come boldly with confidence doesn't mean that we lose sight of his majesty. Uh, Approaching with confidence means that confidently we enter through the finished work of Christ aware that our approach is made possible only through his blood and righteousness and as i said a few minutes ago it is the throne of grace it's not a throne of works Uh, by definition we don't deserve to be there it is a free gift and the admission has been paid by another you know what would happen on the day of atonement? I mean I mean here is primarily what would happen. This is maybe the most important thing I'm going to tell you today. The day of atonement is approaching. The priest goes in, the priest sprinkles the blood, the priest leaves the holy of holies and the next day rolls around and you know what happens? There has been a death and it was not yours. Something else died. When we look at the real day of atonement, here's what we are saying. There has been a death, and it wasn't mine. Jesus has shed his blood for me, and now based upon that, I have access to his throne. So as a result, you can approach the Lord or pray anytime, anywhere but do so reverently with the disposition that not only is he sympathetic, but that he also has the power to help in time of need. Now again, in the context, I think that time of need for these folks probably meant when they were going to be arrested and persecuted and possibly put to death, but it does not have to be that narrow. We are always to make our request known to God through Christ a couple of things here before i close number one notice that we receive mercy i believe this speaks to our past uh, that our sins are covered through the blood of christ he in mercy forgives all, all of our sins do you need to have your sins forgiven well if you're not saved today there is a way that you can be saved and that is to go to the great high priest, Jesus Christ, to confess to him that you are a sinner, to believe that he died in place of sinners on the cross, that he rose again, and to put your trust in him. But for those of us that are saved, we also need mercy. This is not in my notes. Saturday morning, I woke up, and I had put in a bad night uh, the night before the devil will frequently do this to me and I cannot predict when it is going to happen but what will happen is I am awakened in the middle of the night and I get a very clear picture of my past it is quiet and I begin to think about my sins And this voice which comes to me, it's not an audible voice, but it's just me and my memories thinking about the sins that I have committed in the past will draw the conclusion, and the conclusion is this. Not only should you not be a pastor, you shouldn't even be alive. You don't deserve to be in the presence of God. You, look at what you have done and it is at that point that i have to run to christ you know when we when we don't have that conviction we tend to think highly of ourselves uh, we will daydream about ourselves, and we will look at our accomplishments, and we will we will we will think about how highly other people ought to view us, and we walk around with this pride or and this arrogance. But 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 when the devil blindsides you and gets a good blow in on you, and you come to the conclusion, "Oh God, what have I done? Oh Lord, uh, these sins!" and and they are all right in front of you. You very quickly stop thinking about yourself. And stop thinking about your accomplishments. It is then that you must run and that you must hide. And I want to tell you today that there is a place of help. And it is a place of mercy. And it is the throne of grace or the mercy seat. And based upon the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. You have found mercy. And it is all in and so you pour contempt upon all of your pride but you delight in the mercy of Jesus Christ. So not only does it deal with our past but notice it deals with our present and our future in that we find grace to help in time of need. Time of need. I don't know what your time of need is. I believe that It includes persecution. I believe it includes temptation to sin. I believe it includes sickness. I believe that it includes broken relationships. I believe that it includes depression and loneliness. I believe it it, it is a time of need when we need guidance. I believe it is time of need when a loved one is dying and, and, and you haven't had it yet, but you're going to have it. There's going to be a time of need when you are on your own deathbed. Oh, I need Thee every hour. We need grace to help in time of need. And thankfully, there is one who not only knows what we are going through and feels what we are going through and sympathizes, but there's one who has the power to help in our time of need. So I direct you today toward Jesus Christ, your helper in time of need. Three points of application as we close. Number one, Press on. Don't quit. Don't turn back. Hold fast your confession of faith, as the text says. I know that nobody here, or at least I don't think there's anybody here, is tempted to go back into Judaism, B- but don't go back into the world. You might be considering a departure from Christianity because the pressure is just too great. Friends, you have a great high priest who can sympathize. You press on. Don't quit. Don't quit. Press on. Number two, pray. Uh, 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 Pray without ceasing. There is now access to God through our great high priest and his powerful help in time of need as our mediator and therefore with boldness and with confidence pray. Pray. Oh, what peace we often forfeit, and oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. And so I ask you, do you attend the prayer meetings of the church? If you don't, you should. You should. That is something that you should do. If you are sitting at home while a prayer meeting in the church is going on, you are not doing the right thing. You should come to the prayer meeting of the church, but then you should pray every day. You should pray every day because you have access to the throne of grace. And application point number three, you need to view Jesus as one who is merciful and helpful and sympathetic. You know, our approach to people is often shaped by how we think they are going to react, how they think, how we think they will receive us. I think the fundamental reason why children will not tell their parents about bad things that they have done is because they fear what the reaction will be. Children are not unique in this. It all started in the Garden of Eden. Man sins. It is not man's tendency to move in the direction of God for fearful fear of what God will do, but it is the tendency of man to hide naked behind the bush that is what we have been doing we have been running from god we have been hiding from him because we fear the reaction this is why spouses will not be open with one another if i tell her that what is she going to think it's why church members will not come to their elders and say i'm struggling with this i need your help because what will they think of me if they know the truth now listen, I know that everybody here respects Jesus and I'm sure you love Jesus and I'm sure that you know that he can help. But you need to know as, a, as an offspring of Adam, there is a natural bent or propensity on the part of every person in the room to be reluctant to go to Christ in time of need because we view him as one who has a scowl, one who has his arms crossed, who is cold and formal, one who will say to you, we have been through this before. You ought to know better. Yes, objectively, I will forgive you. I have to forgive you. Why do I have to forgive you? Well because I died on the cross for you, but let's be really clear. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. We think that he is disgusted with us or that he is disappointed. And when you see him that way, you are not seeing him correctly. Please understand that he is powerful to help but understand his inclination. He is sympathetic. He is leaning forward. His arms are open. He bids you come. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He is warm and he is gentle. He sympathizes. He understands. Brothers and sisters, do you know today that Jesus loves you? I'm the prodigal son and, and, and I, I, I just I'm starving that's it I I gotta I gotta give home a shot when I get home there are two things that happen number one I sure am enjoying this food man that bath feels good wow there's a party for me this is enjoyable the other thing that's going through my mind if I am the prodigal son is i never thought that my father would respond the way that he would i want to tell you friends that, that that your own wicked heart and the devil and perhaps bad theology are telling you today that jesus will not welcome you i want to say to you today we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but one who is tempted in all ways that, as we are, yet without sin. And he says, Come boldly to the throne of grace. Ye who are weary, come home. Jesus loves you, and Jesus welcomes you to come to him. One of my favorite hymns is entitled Does Jesus Care? Anyone know that hymn? Does Jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for mirth and song? As the burdens press and the cares distress and the way grows weary and long. Oh yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary and the long night dreary, I know my Savior cares. Oh, does Jesus care when I've tried and failed to resist some temptation strong? When for my deep grief I find no relief, though my tears flow all the night long? That's a question, and there's an answer, and the answer is, oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief, and when the days are weary and the long night dreary, I know my Savior cares does jesus care when i've said goodbye to the dearest on earth to me and my sad heart aches till it nearly breaks is it aught to him does he see oh yes he cares i know he cares his heart is touched with my grief when the days are weary the long night dreary, I know my save your cares, casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Father in heaven, we left to ourselves are nothing we have nothing we have no means of being anything but lord because of the work of our great high priest we now have access i pray dear lord that we would not believe the lies of the devil that would keep us at a distance but i pray that we would approach you with confidence through our great high priest jesus christ in whose name we pray amen